I appreciate those who stood in for me last week when I went up to Cincinnati to my 50 plus one high school, high school reunion. Bunch of old people there. And you know, you all think I'm decrepit, but you should have seen some of those people. Anyway, I'm just kidding. They might be listening. But it was interesting. I don't know. I've been thinking about this all week. I can't go here very far because I have things we can just say. But I was uh, struck at the difference in the conversations and in the and the people from my 20th reunion. I went to a couple, one or two in between, and this reunion. Now that we're all approaching 70 or so, and uh, for one thing, 85 of my I had a class of 750 something graduates in my class. The freshman class that year was 1,300. So it's a big high school. And um, 85 of those people, at least 85, are dead. Some people I, I knew were well are dead. My best friend from high school was dead. So it's interesting to see that happen. And uh, I was probably in the worst physical shape almost ever, all of them. So here I am, by the grace of God. In any event... Um, what I saw was uh, much more spiritual interest than I could ever have imagined. This was a very secular high school, even from the 60s and early 70s. It was taught by a bunch of what I know now to be very, very liberal, progressive teachers and what they tried to teach for the most part. And yet, in our reunion and in the gathering and in the little show they had later, here are two or three people leading prayers, and the co- and the conversations these people had with me uh, were, I, I was just taken aback. Went back to the motel last Saturday night, and it's like I, I was just trying to process some of what I had seen. One of our class leaders, a really nice guy, uh, he comes up to me. He's been successful in life. He sits down beside me. I was sit, kind of sitting by myself for a minute there, and he said, "Schmidt, I got to tell you something." I said, "What's that?" He said, "I got saved two years ago." He said, can you believe that? Well, I don't know. And we talked a little bit. And I said, well, Bob, I said, you know, what? I'm seeing so many people today, I used to have a lot of influence on younger people. Maybe because I'm old, I don't. Or maybe it's because the generation of young people's changed. I don't know what it is. But I said, I see a lot of older people, my age and down somewhat, who have realized that they probably have wasted their life. They haven't found meaning, and they thought they could get by with just doing whatever they wanted. He goes, he smiles, he says, yep, that's me. And it finally dawned on me, I basically wasted all those years. I could have been doing something worthwhile, and I was just doing whatever I wanted. So he says, I'm really, really trying to understand the Bible. I'm really, really trying to, I'm trying to look there. i got to understand the Bible. I'm, I'm just sitting there blinking, you know, because I know some of the past. God is wonderful. He doesn't, he never gives up on people. You might give up on him, but he doesn't give up on you. And sometimes it takes experiences in life, even the ones where you say, I just wasted all these years and pointless endeavors before you might say, I need to find something actually meaningful to do with the time I have left. And you know what he'll do? He'll take you at the 11th hour. And then he tell a whole parable about that that people objected to. He'll take you at the 11th hour. So maybe that's where we are in 21st century America. Maybe we have a whole generation of people who are at the 11th hour 
and maybe we can save some. I'm grateful for that. I was very, very um, uh, moved by that in a certain way. I hope I'm not just completely. Now, the, the, the other thing is, I think, the other analysis is, thinking about it a little later, what kind of people go to a 50th reunion? Well, people that understand the value of friendship and association, maybe love, well, those people are naturally religious. So maybe that's who showed up. I started thinking of some of the people that did show up. Yes, these were pretty good people back then, more more so than the shallow cheerleaders and athletes, the shallow ones. Now, there were some that are deep, but, but you know, more so than just the, the people that were going to make a buck. Uh, those people weren't there. Most of them were. So maybe it was just the kind of people that show up to a 50th reunion. You know, like me that spent a bunch of money you didn't have to go up there. Anyway, it was interesting. I thank you for being uh, understanding about that. And then we, then I flew from there to back to Atlanta, and we had a graduation party for my granddaughter, Rachel, who many of you know. What an incredible young lady. And uh, she uh, she graduated this year and um, got to spend some time with my son, Philip and Sarah, and his family. It was one. Judy's still there. Her and Karen are there. They met me there, and um, they're coming home. I hope tomorrow. I, I don't do well without her here. I mean, I got up this morning. I didn't get in until after 2 o'clock last night. And, and so, uh, after being up all day, and I, I, I didn't even think about making coffee. So I got up this morning, got, all, got showered, got ready to go, went in the kitchen like, there's no coffee. McDonald's, here we come. So anyway, that's what happened. It's not a pretty sight. Anyway, as you see before you, I want to talk with you about the subject of you are not the same person that you were. Now, I will admit that many of the thoughts, scriptures I'm using this morning come from a fellow named Stephen Altrogi um, from some years ago. I think his father wrote the song, you were an awesome God that's in our book number 937. I know it's his, I, I forget which one's the father and which one's the son. I think that the one, the Stephen is the father. Mark is the son. I think maybe I got it back. No, the one that wrote the song is the father. I think I, I don't know. It's, anyway, they're evangelical preachers. They, I think they have a blog and, and so we don't agree about a lot of things. We wouldn't agree, but they, they write interesting things and thoughtful, uh, articles. And I ran across this one because I think it, it, it hits on something that probably everybody here already knows. What I'm going to say this morning, you already know. Uh, and so we're not going to use new scriptures in some novel way. Uh, but you, we need to be reminded about this because it's easy to forget. And if you have been brought up or gone into one of the reformed churches where basically you're taught that you can't do anything. Shouldn't even try to do anything. I had a conversation with a man yesterday who basically said that you can't, you shouldn't even try to do anything to save yourself. God does everything. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't save you, you won't be saved. And so it's just, you're just lost. And, and, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't really carry on much of a conversation with him, even though he's a great guy and I think he loved the Bible. But his understanding of those things, I started to say, you know, I can go to the first page of the Bible and show you where this is incorrect. 
I can go to the last page of the Bible and I can show you where the idea that you don't have any bearing on your salvation at all is wrong. The whole Bible is about that fact. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, Peter tells them. Can you do it by yourself, the stuff that you make up, do it your own way? Absolutely not. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But what I want to get across is really more personal in the concept that a lot of people, and I'm one of them, so I'm in this group, we, we start off and we become a Christian so we can be different and we know that we need to be different. We know that we need to change. We want to do differently. And then sometimes we end up right back where we were. Or it seems like it's a fruitless endeavor because we keep doing the same things over and over again. And Paul talks about this. I don't even have this verse up here in Romans 7, about the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, the things that I do. Uh, I didn't even put that in here. This is this is a human experience. It's a Christian experience. And there have been many highfalutin theological explanations for this. Among them is the idea that, well, you're just lost. You can never really change. God just has to uh, accept you as you are, and he justifies you, and you've got nothing to do with it. Uh, that's one. Uh, but I don't think it's the correct one. I think you did change, and things did change when you became a Christian. And I think that that's proper understanding. When you were baptized into Christ, the earth moved and everything changed about you. You became something different than you were. Did it feel like that? Well, maybe not. Maybe six months later it didn't feel like that. But that doesn't change the reality of it. Do you always live up to that? And so, well, and so what some people say is, well, if you go on and live a, a poor life and make bad choices, you weren't really saved in the first place. That's always the explanation. Well, they weren't really saved in the first place. If that's true, nobody's saved. I don't buy that some people are baptized, become a Christian, and they just don't ever sin again. Never seen it. Don't expect to see it. And so the explanation is not, well, you just weren't really saved. No, people fall away. Some people just turn their back on God. You're allowed to, God permits you to do that. Not, not in the sense he says it's okay, but he doesn't keep you from walking away from him. He did the father in the parable didn't keep the son from going off to a far country. He just waited for him to return. And he was looking for him when he did, but the son still went away of his own accord, even though he had all the blessings of the father. This is the position we find ourselves in. Now let's look at a couple of scriptures about this. We'll get in, I got a few, so maybe we need to get going here. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul just puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now that one you have to think about if you're trying to make this apply to you. Is it really you that's living anymore in your body? Well, Paul, he says, it's not me who, I think what he means is not I who live. It's not me deciding finally what I do. I've given up deciding for myself what I'm going to do. I look at what Christ's will is, and then I do that. Christ lives in me and has come to dwell in my heart by faith. That's how he dwells in us. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I'm living on the earth here, I live it by faith in the Son of God. Every decision I make, I try to make it based on what God has told me, what I know from the Scriptures, by faith in him and confidence in him. And he loved me and gave himself for me. And he says, before that, go back. Now, that's the verse. It's not Christ, I live, not me that's living. It's Christ living in me. We need to understand that that's true if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's not true. He's not talking about you. 
You don't have Christ living in you. You're struggling on your own. And, you know, that's something you're going to have to deal with eventually. But those who are in Christ have Christ living in them. To one degree or another, to one degree or another, you can understand his presence and you can act according to that. And we'll come back to that. Notice what he says before this. Here are these Galatians. They were trying to go back and keep the law of Moses as a means of salvation. He's trying to convince them that that's not the right way to do that. And he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, which of course is true. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Is it so that now we're trying to be justified by Christ and we find ourselves now, even after we've been saved, we find ourselves committing sin. Does that mean that Christ is okay with that? Is he a minister of sin? He says, certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So I once tried to destroy my way of living and thinking. And I tried to do that in my life when I was a young man. Destroy what I had done and built and try to go a different way. I remember feeling so distinctly when I left for co- got away to college. Didn't know anybody. I was by myself, away from my family. But everybody I knew, I, I realized. And I had all these big ideas. And I realized, you know, this is your chance to be something different than you've been. You're, you're, you're wrong. You've been doing wrong. And I've been doing wrong. You've been doing wrong and you know it's wrong. You're already a Christian from back there. Now you keep, you're doing this. You need to make a change. And I tried to do that. I really did. And I was somewhat successful, sort of, for a time. And then I, you know, go back and come back and go back and come back. Anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and, and finally, I think I have some mastery over some of those things. A lot of people would say I don't because I just refuse to take a drink. I just refuse to use intoxicants. Oh, you're not in control. You're such an infant. You're such a baby because you won't even take a drink or use intoxicants. Okay. You can say that if you want to. I know myself. I'm not going to do that, Lord willing. I'm not going to do that because I've been down that road. And so I have to decide which way it's going to be. So I can build the things which I destroyed. I became a Christian. I destroyed some things in my old life. Now I built them back up again. I'll be a transgressor though. Is it possible for a person who's been saved to become a transgressor? Paul says so right here. I don't care what John Calvin says about it. Paul says you can become a transgressor after you become a Christian. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So I have to understand that what's supposed to be living in me is Christ living in me, determining my actions. He's like he's like the person that takes control of the big machine from the inside and pulls the levers on me now. The machine has decided it's going to let the person operating it do what it's going to do. So Christ needs to be pulling the levers inside of you. That's determine what you think and how you act. Are you letting him do that? Or are you still asserting your own will and desire? That's the question. And that's why Paul says here a little bit uh, later in the book of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. 
The word new here, there's two different words for new in the Greek language. One is new in time. One is new in type, kind. So uh, something is new in time, meaning it's it just came off the assembly line. So, you know, I've got a, a microwave oven. It's a new, I don't have, I'm making this up. But Judy only wishes we had a new microwave oven. But anyway, let's just say I did. A new microwave oven. And it's brand new, it's new, and that word there is a Greek, certain Greek word. But is it the only one of its kind? No, there's millions of them probably, hundreds of thousands of them like it. Now, if some things I have, I buy because they're new in kind. They're a brand new kind of thing that you can have. That's a different, that's the word here. He said, you become not just a new baby that's born, but you become a whole new kind of person. A different kind of person you were before that time. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I can tell you from personal experience and watching, observing others, baptizing hundreds of people, that this is the way people feel. We had a couple, two or three years ago, a 95-year-old man named Glenn, who I baptized right there. He came up out of that water crying. At 95 years old, he said, I finally... I'm finally a different person. Something like that. It's finally different. He felt that. He understood that he had become different than he was before, even though he was 95 years old. It was very, very astounding to me. That's one of those old people I'm talking about. Sort of the the 17-year-olds and 16-year-olds having to argue whether you can baptize 8-year-old kids. Now now you get 95-year-olds. God God is just uh, baffling sometimes. As it were, you don't understand what's going on. But look, look at this passage here. In now, this should say First Corinthians six. I'm sorry, it doesn't. This should say First Corinthians six. So, a person who becomes a Christian has to understand that their their fundamental identity has changed. We have a lot of talk today about identities, don't we? What's your identity? Are you heterosexual, bisexual, transsexual, asexual? polysexual, I can't even think of all the types. What's your identity? Are you, do you identify as black, Hispanic, white? Who do you identify as? So this identity thing is a big deal to people today. Always has been, I suppose. In Christ, the truth is, the Bible is very clear. None of those things matter in Christ. He's given us a new identity. And it's his identity. It's him. That's the identity we should be concerned about in the big picture of things. Not a political identity or not a sexual identity or something like that, but a new identity in Christ. Now, sometimes you don't feel like things have changed. He's trying to tell you they have changed. Go back and think about the day that you were baptized. What I'm trying to tell you is, if you meant that, if that was real, something fundamentally changed about you, you became identified as a Christian. That's who you are now, a Christian. And so, wherever you go, that's your identity that you carry with you. I tried to kind of give this idea to my sons and my daughters when they were growing up in a different way. Maybe this, maybe this is a poor illustration. I don't know. You know, people ask you, so, uh, what do you do? Who, you know, who, more or less, who are you? Well, I'm a preacher or I'm a fireman or I'm a, I'm a carpenter or whatever. That they want, we want to, we tend to identify people by what job they have. So they say to kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? That's an identity question. And I tried to tell my, uh, my sons in particular, I remember talking to them about this. 
what do you want to be when you grow up? What I, I said, what I want you to be is a husband and a father. That's what I want you to be. That's what, at, besides a Christian, I want your fundamental identity that you focus on to be a husband and a father. I don't care what you do to make money. As long as it's legal, I don't care what you do to make money. Whether it's a high education or it's a low education, I want you to be a Christian, a husband, and a father. I want you girls, my daughters, I want them to be a wife and a mother and a Christian. That should be their identity. Everything else is secondary to that. I don't think, I don't think people grow up with that anymore in American society. We always focus on the economics of it, what your, what your occupation and what's your education? So when you go to a reunion, they want to know what your where'd you go to school and what's your education, what kind of job you had, and they think that identifies you. They think that's your identity. It has something to do with it. But that's not really who you are as a Christian. And so he's trying to say you have to change your identity. And so you may not feel different. You may even have the same temptations. I can guarantee you that most of the things that tempt you before you become a Christian will tempt you afterwards. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you think getting married is going to make you want to stop fornicating and drinking, stop lying, it's not. I mean, can I say getting married, get, being baptized? Well, getting married too, okay? <laughs> getting married won't stop your porn habit. There's something else going on there. I'm not trying just to condemn you. I'm trying to say get a, understand what's really going on. It's not about that. And you don't fix... You don't become suddenly a better person because you get married. You just drag the other person in with you into the deep end of the pool and hold on to them. That, that's sometimes what marriage is like. Somebody just drags you deep in the pool and they're holding on and you're both drowning if you don't get a grip in Christ. So, yes, you will feel the same temptations. The difference I'm trying to say, and we'll come, we won't come to all this this morning, is now you have help, though. There is something different. You know who you are. You know whose child you are, and now you have help. I think a lot of what we don't understand about the New Testament, it seems to me in a practical way, is because we have grown up in a very broad way in a stable society where most people got raised by their parents. They knew who their parents was. They knew a little bit about their history, family history, if it's only a generation or two, and they lived in the same place. In the ancient world, one like that. Adoption was extremely common, had to be, and was highly respected because people just didn't know who their family was. Their par- the mother and father had died when they were young, and they had been, they, or they were slaves and been taken here or there. It was so common. And so when Paul tells them, you've been adopted to the family of God, he tells these people this in these letters, you're God's child. This meant something to them because now that gave them an idea. They didn't have any idea. They, they were just a cog in a wheel in the Roman Empire. They, they didn't mean anything to anybody. Two-thirds of the people living in the city of Rome at the time of Christ were slaves. Now, they weren't chained to a post kind of slaves, but they certainly weren't free. And they weren't highly respected. They didn't have any rights at all in their society, hardly any at all. And they had no identity. They were faceless to all the poor people around. They just didn't matter at all. Anybody know what that feels like here? Of course you do. It's just, I'm just going to tell you, it's just not as bad here. I know it can be bad in America. Please don't misunderstand me. But I'm telling you, it still isn't as bad as it was then for these people. And he's trying to tell them, you now as a slave, as a woman, as a Scythian, as a barbarian, you have an identity that really matters. You're God's child. He's chosen you. He's saved you. 
You are eternally important to Him. That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. What that meant to these people was, wow, that's my Father. I, I want to be like my Father. I want to get close to my Father. What do you think it's like if you were adopted and finally somehow find your Father? You want to know all about this person. You may be afraid of it. You may not like what you find, but you still want to know. I don't think you can help wanting to know about your father, about your brothers and your sisters when you find out that I didn't know who they were. Now I do. God's told you who your father is, who your brother is, Jesus Christ. And now you have all these other brothers and sisters. So this is a new identity. I think that that's a help to you. I think that's a help to you in fighting this temptation. Should be, at least as a starting place. To realize this is who I am. And I don't have to live like I've been living. I'm not meaningless. I'm not pointless. My life matters. My behavior matters to somebody. It may not matter to people around me, but it matters to God, my Father. It matters to Him. When I left the house all the time, it's just, oh, I could have wrung her neck a few times. My mother would say, uh, don't do anything to embarrass your mother. That's what she'd say every time I left the house. I'm a teenager. Don't do anything that would embarrass your mother. Well, that's a pretty... That's a pretty small list. That's a pretty limiting thing. If you knew my mother. Well, but you know what? Here I am. How many years later? 50, 60 years later. Still, rem- I still remember that. And, and it had an impact on me. It really did. Didn't always show. Had an impact on me. I knew when I was doing wrong that I was making my mother ashamed. Making my mother ashamed. Making my father ashamed of me. I didn't want to do that, really. I did it. I didn't want to do it. And eventually that became some of the motivation for me to stop doing it. If you know who you are, you can stop. You can help. It'll help you stop. Now, he says, do you not know, Paul does. This is 1 Corinthians 6. I'm sorry I don't have that reference up here. It's on the next slide. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You keep living in an unrighteous manner. Now, he's not talking here just about unbelievers, as we'll see. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. Now, this is an identity because of what they're doing. This is their identity. Fornicators, that's people that have sex with people they're not married to. Uh, Today, they call it having a partner. They call it love. They call it lots of things. But it's fornication. Hooking up. Whatever. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. By the way, that's the male and female side of the homosexual relationship. The homosexual is the, uh, and the effeminate side too. There's effeminate people mentioned here. There's, every homosexual relationship has a male and female side to it, even if they're both male or if they're both female. And Paul is using the words to address both of those kinds of homosexual relationships. Because the the Romans thought as long as they were the aggressor, as it were, the penetrator, they were good. They were good to go. It was just the receiver that was the bad one. That's the kind of way the Greeks and Romans thought. Paul says, no, 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 no. Not true. I know this is unpleasant, but you just have to come to grips with what the reality of these things are. Now it's celebrated... The flags on the White House, but that's not what's going on here. There's no flags being flown for this. Nor thieves, nor covetous. So he puts thieves in the same class as the other people. You think they're bad? Well, okay, then you're a thief or covetous person, a greedy person, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. They're just not going to be saved. And such were some of you. 
That was your identity. Now you have a new identity. But you were washed. That's washed by baptism. You were sanctified. That's set apart for God's use. You're not his child. You're in his house. You're his. You were justified. You were set straight again. After being crooked and wrong, now you're put up straight again. Everything's fine. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he tells them here, this is how things are. He goes on, though, to talk. You say, well, that's what they once were. So now that they're a Christian, they can't sin. That's not what he says. Notice what, you, what he says a little bit later in the same chapter. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. So now he's talking to, I think my watch just told me to wrap it up. Or get ready to wrap it up. No applause. It's not appropriate in church. We'll try to do that. I'm on slide 7 of 22, just so you know. Um, we're not going to do 22. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, he says? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? You're a Christian. You've been washed from this fornication. But you want to go back and commit fornication again because you think you're clean. And after all, you're a Christian you can't be lost. You can't sin all of a sudden since you're a Christian. People teach this. People believe this. Paul says, what do you think? Should I take this member of Christ, this bot member of my own body, and, and become a member of a harlot, join it to a harlot? I certainly Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, says he, shall become one flesh. There's a joining that takes place. It's wrong for that joining to take place when there's not a marriage there. There. But he said, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You need to realize you're joined to the Lord, so you can't go joining yourself to a harlot. You can join yourself to your wife, but not to a harlot. Don't sin. Flee sexual immorality. Now, who did he say that to? Christians or non-Christians? In this context, he said that to Christians. You can sin after you become a Christian by going back to the same thing you used to do or starting it fresh. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man does is outside the body, but you commit sexual immorality, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That's your identity. You're not yours anymore. You want to be saved. You wanted to go to heaven. You want to be saved. And so the price for that, the price that Christ paid was his eternal relationship with his Father, and he came to the earth and died and became a man, not just a man, but a man. He paid a heavy price with his own life, truly his own life. You pay a price to become a Christian. Cost you. Cost you, 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 your identity. Now you're not your own anymore. You've been bought. You're, you, the picture he's using from the ancient world was the slave market. Here are the slaves up for sale. They're slaves to sin. They're, they're bound and destined to be sold to a wicked master. You'll separate them from their families and take them off to some place they don't even know and abuse them until they die. That's the, that's where they're standing on that platform. Unknown, fear, what's going to happen to me? Master's going to buy me. And a man comes along, in this case Jesus Christ, and pays the price to buy you. And he takes you off that platform and sets you free. But what you owe him then is your whole life. You owe him your life because he saved you from the other life that you were living or going to live. That's ransom. That's redemption. That's what the word redemption is talking about. It's about a slave auction. And so he says, you need to understand something, that you're not your own. And since for, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, you Christians, and in your spirit, which are God's. So the idea that you become a Christian, it's all spiritual, you can go ahead and do what you want, 
And if even if you do wrong, it doesn't matter to God and all those things. You can't do anything to save yourselves, they'll tell you. And when you do sin, it doesn't matter because God's already forgiven it. No. That's error. It's wrong. It's dangerous error. That's being taught all over this country, probably this very morning being taught in evangelical and reformed churches and other places. I'm sorry to name names about that, but, but you need to understand. And, and, and good people, nice men say these things to you. But that's not what Paul says right here. Paul says you as a Christian need to glorify God in your body. And you need to flee fornication for one thing he says. So in Christ, your fundamental identity has changed. You're a whole new you. You're a whole different person. And I would like you to grasp onto that. We aren't going to have time to finish the rest of what I wanted to say this morning. But I want you to grasp a hold of that because I think that can help you to see how to go forward. Now, we haven't got time to talk about all the ways that Christ is here to help you do that because he doesn't just leave you alone. He's going to help you to maintain this identity and serve him. We'll try. I guess it's a two-parter, so at least. I didn't mean for it to be. Um, Judy's not here to go, mm, you know, when I do this, she just shakes her head. You know. Anyway, you'd think somebody married to me and who married me because I talk would be okay with me talking, but apparently not. Anyway, you would think, man, I, I wish I would have got that. Years and years and years ago, I tried to get the website, youwouldthink.com. I thought, man, I can do wonders. I can make some money off that, youwouldthink.com. Because how many times a day do you think, well, you would think, but, yeah, we could make some funny stuff there, but it was already taken. I don't know what they're doing with it, but probably something gross and repulsive. But I want you to see this. Let me tell you, let me stop with this one little non-scriptural, um, I'll stop exactly here, but this is from Augustine. Another great man in many ways who I strongly disagree with because he brought us the doctrine of original sin from the Greek world uh, and influenced the Catholic Church. But here's something, he did. He was converted from being a pagan, non-Christian in his adult years, a scholar and a strongly anti-Christian stance at first until he was about 30 years old. And he had had different women, long relationships with different women and concubines and all kind of stuff before he became a Christian. It says one day, not long after his conversion, Augustine was walking down a street in Milan, Italy, when a prostitute he had been involved with in the past called him, Augustine, it is I. He turned to her and replied, yes, but it is no longer I. There you go. There you go. Does that make any sense to you? That's a, that's a powerful story to me. It's short but powerful. That's what you got to say and understand about being a Christian. It isn't easy, but it's no longer I. It looks like me, talks like me, but it's not me. Christ lives in me, and I cannot do the things I once did. I live a different life. I live a better life, and I won't go back, as Peter says, back to the pig slop and eating the trough with the pigs anymore. A dog going back to its vomit, Peter called it, when you go back. I won't go back because it's not I anymore. It's Christ living in me. So Paul says, put to death in your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once also walked when you lived in things. But he says, go ahead. You put all these away. Thank you for listening this morning. We're going to stop. We have much more to say about this. And we maybe we will, Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day. But I, I want you to think about First of all, just get the idea in your head that what it really means to be a Christian. It isn't just 
a religious thing that you do once in a while. It's not what you do on Sunday. It, it even It's true about you even when you look at your life right now and say, I'm such a mess. I keep wanting to do the same things I've been wanting to do. I make these mistakes over. I'm trying to tell you, friends and, and brethren, it's still not you. You don't have to stay there. God will give you the help to be different. And he'll stay with you all the way, if you will. He won't leave you. The question is, will you leave him? We're going to sing at, uh, a song now as we close that Gary has selected, number 584, softly and tenderly. We're going to sing this song. And in so doing, we're offering you an invitation to come. And if you haven't become a Christian Christian and had your blood sins washed away by the blood of Christ, come this morning and do that. It won't make everything completely different in the sense you'll still want to do what's wrong, but you can have help. And in truth, I don't want to, I've known people that thought they just couldn't beat a certain problem. They just couldn't beat it. And once they became a Christian, they told me later, you know, I just don't want to do that anymore. It doesn't always happen like that, but it can happen like that. And it does happen like that because Christ takes away through the knowledge of who he is, that desire. We call you this morning. If you need to be baptized into Christ to be saved, come and do that. We'll help you. Your angels in heaven will rejoice. And if you're one who's walked away from Christ and lived your own life and you haven't served him and you, you need to repent, come and let others know of that decision to turn away from the way you've been living. If you need forgiveness for something specific that you've done, to someone here, or you want us to know about your repentance, come to the front. We'll pray with you today. God can forgive, and we can encourage you as your brothers and sisters. Can we help you? Come right to the front. Let's stand and sing.